Thank you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. We invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash garden fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. So let's look today at verses 21 through verse 40. We are going to look today and begin thinking about how it is that the testimony to the Christ, the testimony to who Jesus is, how is that testimony being affirmed and confirmed for us in Luke's Gospel? We know that Scripture teaches us that how, how is it that testimony is is affirmed through the testimony of two or three witnesses, right? Something is affirmed through the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so Luke is doing the very same thing for Theophilus here. He's providing testimony to the Messiahship of Jesus, but he's providing multiple witnesses to who Jesus is. Today he's going to provide a number of witnesses, combining them with some of the ones that he's already talked about. He's already talked about Zechariah, uh, Elizabeth, John the baptizer has been a witness to who Jesus is. Today we're going to look at some more witnesses, uh, depending on how you count them, either three or four. There's Mary and Joseph, that can be either one or two. There is this fellow by the name of Simeon, and there's this lady by the name of Anna. So let's take a look today at verse 21 through verse 40. Let's read them together first, starting from verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, and you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and for and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts, may, from, thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting, with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at this very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So, we have before us, the testimony of a number of witnesses, Mary and Joseph, Simeon, Anna. And in order for the testimony of a witness to be reliable, what must be established? 
<clears throat> the, the trustworthiness, right, of such a witness, the character of such a witness must be established in order for their testimony to be reliable. Scripture says that a thing is established on the testimony of two or three witnesses when that testimony agrees. Well, witnesses came forth at the trial of Jesus. Witnesses came forth at the trial of Stephen. Their testimonies didn't necessarily agree completely, but nonetheless they brought forth testimony that was false. So even testimony from several witnesses that agrees with itself <laughs> can still be unreliable if the character of those witnesses is questionable. So Luke, speaking to Theophilus here, wants to make sure that Theophilus knows the character of the people that are bringing forth testimony about who Jesus is. That character is trustworthy, it's reliable, it's honorable. You can believe what they say about Jesus being the Christ. So three ways that Luke is going to tell Theophilus of the reliability of their witness. First of all, he's going to talk about their righteousness. Secondly, he's going to talk about their obedience. And then he's also going to talk about the presence and the activity of the Spirit. Those three things are confirming for Theophilus the reliability of the witnesses that are testifying to the person of Jesus Christ. Their, their righteousness, their obedience, and the presence and the activity of the Spirit. So let's begin looking at, first of all, Joseph and Mary. We read that um, Joseph and Mary, they've of course have both been visited by the angel. Matthew's gospel fills in some de details here that Luke's gospel does not. But they've been visited by the angel. They know that Jesus is the Christ. They've been told of his Messiahship. And so um, they are witnesses to who Jesus is. And we're told, the scriptures tell us, that first of all, Joseph was a righteous man. If we were to look in Matthew's gospel... Matthew confirms that for us in chapter 1, verse 19. Joseph being a just man or a righteous man, same word there, a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph is called righteous or just in this instance. He's called righteous. And we should be careful to, to see that when the Scriptures speak of a person being righteous, in our vernacular, calling somebody righteous is not necessarily a compliment. Because we have the connotation of self-righteous. And so oftentimes when we think of so-and-so is just a righteous person, that's not usually not a compliment to them. But scripturally speaking, biblically speaking, when the scriptures call a person righteous, then that is speaking not of some sort of righteousness that they've attained, some sort of goodness that they have developed within themselves, but it's speaking of what God has made them to be or what God has declared them to be. In other words, when the Scriptures call Joseph righteous, they mean that God has declared him to be righteous. He is forgiven of his sins and he is in right relationship with God. Or as the ESV translated that verse, he is a just man, or in other words, he has been justified with God. So Joseph is a righteous man, or a person that is declared by God to be forgiven of sin in right relationship with God. Mary, the same thing. If we were to look back at chapter 1, uh, verse uh, 46 is one of the places that we can see where she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So Mary is another one that the Scriptures will call righteous, not because she is self-righteous, but because she has been declared to be right with God. She has received forgiveness of sin, which, by the way, explains why Joseph wanted to put Mary away quietly. 
Joseph didn't want to put Mary away quietly because he was a legalistic man, because he followed the letter of the law. If that was the case, he would have had her stoned. He wanted to put her away quietly because he had received forgiveness of his sin. And what do the scriptures teach us about our own hearts when we are the recipients of God's God's forgiveness is that we extend that to others. And so that's why Matthew says that he wanted to put her away quietly because he himself knew of what he has been forgiven of. And so he was naturally forgiving towards Mary as well. So they're righteous people. Mary and Joseph are righteous people. They, um, they display their righteousness or they manifest their righteousness through their obedience. Verse 21 says that at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. So they're going to go through these steps of obedience that we're going to look at, these three steps of obedience that uh, Mary and Joseph will follow with the boy Jesus, the baby Jesus, circumcision, purification, and presentation. We'll talk about those in just a minute. But they, they, they manifest or they display, they show their righteousness through their willing obedience to the law of God. As, as James tells us in James chapter 2, that, that true faith, faith that saves, is a faith that carries itself over into our works, into our actions, displays itself in what we do. And so Mary and Joseph, they display their forgiveness with God or their righteousness with God through their willing obedience. So we'll talk about that in just a moment. But first, let's mention what they named the boy. Verse 21, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. So at his circumcision, he's officially given the name of Jesus, which is just like how it happened with John the baptizer. Apparently that was the custom, was when uh, the circumcision took place. That's when the name was given or the name was announced. And he's given the name Jesus. Of course, the angel tells Joseph in Matthew's Gospel that he's to, he's to be named Jesus. He tells Mary in Luke's Gospel that he's to be named Jesus. And so they are obeying what the angel has told them to, to call him, call him Jesus. Now, if we think about his name for just a moment, the name Jesus is something to, I think, remark about. The name Jesus... You realize, of course, that Jesus is the only baby ever to name himself. There's never, ever been another baby that named himself. The name of Jesus was given before he was conceived. And it was given to Mary and Joseph by the angel Gabriel via God, from God. So uh, in that sense, Jesus names himself. And he names himself the name which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. God saves. Remember, uh, the, the Hebrew equivalent of that, of course, is Joshua. And you remember the story of Joshua? He, that wasn't his given name. God changed his name to Joshua because he, he became a type of Savior for Israel, right? So it means Yahweh saves. And I've often thought about what Jesus chose to name himself. Because think about that. Jesus could have named himself. He could have given himself any human name that he wanted. He could have named himself Emmanuel, which means God with us. He could have named himself King of Kings. He could have named himself King of Righteousness. He could have named himself Melchizedek. He could have named himself Great and Powerful One. He could have named himself whatever he wanted. But he chose to name himself Yahweh Saves. And I think that is a reflection for us, for the character of God, that the very name that Jesus wanted to be called 
was the name that means Yahweh saves, or to put it another way, Yahweh delights in saving. It is the character of the Father to take great pleasure in saving people. You know, there is a tragic misunderstanding among many people of faith, many churches and denominations that goes like this, that that God the Father is some sort of unwilling Savior. That He really wants to pour out His wrath on sinful people, but then, doggone it, Jesus went and died on the cross, and now there's this cross thing that if people call on that, well, then God, He has to save them then. And that's so tragic because it is so inaccurate. God is a God who takes deep pleasure in saving lost people. He is the God who weeps tears in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, of course, is the weeping prophet because his heart is so broken for Israel. But the tears that Jeremiah is weeping, they're God's tears that Jeremiah is weeping for God. God is the God who weeps over people who refuse Him. He's the one who says through Ezekiel that He takes no pleasure in the death of wicked people. Chance after chance. Not only Nineveh, but we could go down through all the nations. We could look, uh, I'm reading through Isaiah now, at all the prophecies that God sends to the nations because He wants the nations to turn to, to Him. Or we look at Jesus in Matthew's Gospel who looks down on Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like like chicks, because I desire that none would perish. So what a tragedy that our our hearts are sometimes led to misunderstand God as sort of this unwilling Savior of people that, well, we we sort of have this this, uh, logistical thing called the cross, and if people put faith in that, well, then they're saved. But otherwise, then then they're the object of wrath, and nothing could be further from the truth. So Jesus chooses the name that forever will say, Yahweh delights in saving people. So they name him Jesus at the eighth day when he was circumcised. So let's take a look at their obedience. Three things, three ways that Joseph and Mary show their obedience. One is going to be circumcision. Secondly, uh, purification. And thirdly, presentation. So let's look first at at circumcision. Verse 21, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. So, one thing that we're going to see consistently throughout this passage is Luke is going to come back repeatedly to this phrase, the law of the Lord, or the law of Moses. The phrase, the law, shows up there numerous times. It's like Luke wants the reader to see, without question, that Jesus was the perfect obeyer of the law from the point of His birth, that Jesus obeyed the law to perfection from the beginning of His life. Jesus obeyed the law of Moses better than Moses obeyed the law of Moses because He was the perfect obedient Son. Jesus will grow up, of course, to be accused later in life of being disobedient with the whole healing on the Sabbath thing like that. But the fact is that Jesus, through his entire life, was a perfect obeyer of the law. And they begin on the right foot by taking Jesus to be circumcised on the eighth day as the law required. Jesus, of course, is circumcised. Now, 
circumcision is one of those things in Scripture that we tend to avoid because we don't really know what it means and it's kind of uncomfortable to think about anyway. Um, and we're really perplexed as to why that was the sign of God's people. And even today, we're not sure, are we supposed to circumcise our baby boys or not? And, and so circumcision is one of those things that shows up all over the place in Scripture, but hardly ever in a sermon, because we don't quite know what to say about it. So let's talk for just a little bit about circumcision and why Jesus was circumcised and what it meant. First of all, we remember that Jesus or that God gives circumcision to Moses in Genesis chapter 17. And he tells Moses very clearly that this is the sign of my people. My people will be a people whose males are circumcised. And this will be how you'll be known as my people through the sign of circumcision. Now, what does circumcision mean and why did God choose it? Part of the confusion, I think, comes from the fact that Scripture never tells us. Scripture never tells us why it is that that's the sign of God's people and what that sign physically represents. And so we're left to do a little sanctified speculation, which I have, as you might imagine, have done. <laughs> I think that God chooses the sign of circumcision. Um, and be aware, you may want to squirm in your seat just a little bit right now. Um, I think he chooses the sign of circumcision for much the same reason that he tells Moses to take his sandals off. The sign of God's people is a sign of unity that is so close that there's not even skin between the two. I don't have to remind you of how often God talks about marriage as a picture of him. The man and the woman, marriage, is that, that is a picture of the union between Christ and us. And so the best I can tell is that God desires his people to have a sign that teaches them that his closeness to them is just that close so that there's not even skin between the two. You know, you think of Moses in Exodus chapter 3, take off your sandals for the, the ground you're standing on is holy ground. And I think we often misunderstand that to mean that God is saying, I don't want you to bring dirty dirt here onto my, my holy dirt. And I don't think that's at all God's meaning. I think what God means there is this is holy ground. This is where I am. And I desire to be so close to my people that there's not even the sole of your sandal between me and you. Or Joshua. Think of jo Joshua takes off his sandals as he meets the commander of the army of the Lord. I think that's what God is getting at with the sign of circumcision. However, circumcision is quite painful, so I'm told. Circumcision is one of those things that um, we have had the, the privilege of having now three of our children circumcised, not on the eighth day, but something like the eighth hour. That's always a really uncomfortable time. All, all three times. It's just like the nurse comes and, get, and, it's, and it's, half of me wants to say, no, we're not, we're not doing that. And it's, and it's a terribly uncomfortable thought for a parent to, to, because it's very painful. And you can imagine in Jesus' day, there, there was no clean, cleanliness. There, were, there was no understanding of bacteria. You can imagine that infection from circumcision, sickness, and perhaps even death was something that would sometimes occur. 
So imagine what goes through Mary and Joseph's mind. Their baby is the Messiah. You think they might want to be a little overprotective about the Messiah? Wait, now this isn't just any normal baby. You're, you're going to be cutting on the Son of God. Make sure that that flintstone is nice and sharp or whatever. You can imagine their anxiety, but you, nevertheless, they obey. So here's the takeaway that circumcision is the sign, I believe, of God's closeness to his people. But it doesn't come without pain and blood reminding us of the fallenness in which we live. We live in a fallen state in which closeness with God doesn't come without the pain of the knife. So a powerful symbol for, for each parent in Jesus' day. Here's the sign of God's people, and this isn't pleasant. This is bloody. This hurts. So it is a picture, I think, of closeness, but it is also a picture of pervading sin. That sin is always there and closeness with God in this life is not as it should be. Uh, there, there is still a lot that we're waiting for in fulfillment for what that means. So imagine now what Jesus is doing. Jesus is now being submitted to the rite of circumcision and he will now experience physical pain by way of the sign of God's people that was never intended to be. Now here's Messiah that has come to take away the sin of the world and he himself will be circumcised in such a painful uh, such a painful type of way. So I think it's remarkable to think about the, the obedience of Jesus here, the obedience of Jesus' parents. We, we think of Galatians 4 verse 4 that Jesus was born under the law. He will live a life of perfect obedience under, law, under the law, beginning with circumcision. Now, have you ever thought of why it is that Jesus didn't just come for a weekend? Because everything important happened over a weekend, right? I mean, it's, especially if you consider it a long weekend, like this, you know, a three-day weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Everything of importance happened from His crucifixion on Friday morning to His resurrection on Sunday. So why didn't Jesus just come for a weekend? Because in order for you to receive by faith the gift of having lived a perfect life, Jesus had to live that perfect life. Jesus couldn't just show up, poof, here he is at his trial, put on the cross, dies, rises from the dead, and he's done. He had to live a full, complete, perfect life in order for us to receive the credit for having lived a perfect life. As God looks at you, the, His son, His daughter, as He looks at you, His redeemed covenant child, He sees a person that isn't just forgiven, but has lived perfectly. Not because you have, but because Jesus did. And the Scriptures tell us that his righteousness is accounted to us while our sin is accounted to him. So he begins with the circumcision knife. And then he goes from there to the next spot of obedience. Is um, And notice how each of these has the aspect of the pervasiveness of sin. The, the next item of obedience is uh, the, um, the purification. Verse 22, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses... 
they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So here's what that's all about. Leviticus chapter uh, 12 tells us about the purification of, of women who have given birth. It says this, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she, be, she shall be unclean seven days. So after birth, the woman is unclean for seven days in the same way as she's unclean in the menstrual cycle for seven days. Now, before we move to the rest of that, I want to be very clear that when Scripture talks about a person being unclean, it's not speaking of physically unclean, emotionally unclean, or unclean in any sort of tangible way that we might think. It's speaking of ceremonially unclean. What it means for a person to be unclean is that they cannot, in their unclean status, enter into the temple. They cannot, in their unclean status, touch any holy things because they're ceremonially unclean. And so then, in order to be clean, they ceremonially cleanse themselves. Okay, So it's not speaking of women as though women are, are dirty after birth or there's some sort of sickness or they need to be avoided in that way. It's speaking ceremonially. And the point is, here is the most beautiful moment of most people's life. The birth, not only of a child, but, a, but the birth of the first child. A time of tremendous happiness and joy. And in the middle of all that, here's God to say, you're still sinners. There's still this issue of sin. And even in the most joyful moment of your life, that still has to be dealt with. Because you've given birth to a precious gift from God that is a sinner. And so that still must be dealt with. So the woman is unclean for seven days. And on the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are complete. So seven days, uh, she's unclean. Then on the eighth day, there's circumcision. And then 33 days of uncleanness, uncleanness, ceremonial uncleanness after that. So 40 days of uncleanness for the woman. Again, the message that it's saying is there remains the issue of sin that has to be dealt with. You need Messiah to come. You need for the Redeemer to come because only He can take away the scourge that is symbolically represented by your ceremonial uncleanness. Even after the most joyful time of human existence, there's still this issue of sin. And so here comes Mary and Joseph in obedience to the ceremonial law, which is reminding them that there's this issue of sin that must be dealt with. And so she undergoes her 30 or 40 days of purification because she's just given birth to the Messiah, who is the Redeemer, who will take away the scourge that she must wait 40 days for. You see the, the, not only the irony, but you see the beauty of what's going on in Mary and Joseph's life right now. This is a passage, we've said before how familiar we are with the birth narrative, up to verse 20. 
And then our familiarity sort of drops off. But we are missing a huge swath of Scripture here that just is packed with helpful and interesting things like meditating on the fact that here is the, the mother and the husband of the mother of the Messiah who themselves must undergo their period of purification before Messiah can be brought to the temple to be presented. It's a wonderful picture of what Jesus is here to do. It's a wonderful picture of the fact that even his mother is still shackled with the sin that he has come to deal with. You know, this is also one of the, the best places we talk about Mary and how the, the Catholic misconception of the Virgin Mary, that she is immaculately conceived and sinless. Well, if so, why was she undergoing her purification? So this is one of the best places to refute such a false doctrine as that. So here's Mary and Joseph undergoing the obedience of purification. Also, uh, thirdly, we want to take a look at the obedience of presentation. So they brought him up to Jerusalem uh, to present him to the Lord. By the way, it was not the law that he had to be brought to Jerusalem. But he could be presented to the Lord anywhere. Mary and Joseph here, I think, are showing an extraordinary level of obedience. They want to be obedient to the maximum degree that they, they can. So they bring him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So, here they come to present Jesus to the Lord. Now, what was that all about? Um, from Exodus 13, we read that God says that the firstborn male is mine. Um, what he means there is, is not that the firstborn male of every family was a priest and you know they dropped him off at the temple steps and, okay, let's go start working on number two now. It, it, it meant that the firstborn was dedicated to the service of the Lord in a special way, in a more complete way, in a more profound way than the second or third born. Uh, God says, the firstborn is especially mine. So here come Mary and Joseph to present Jesus to the Lord after their period of purification. And think of what they're doing. They're presenting the Son of God to God for service to Him. I tell you, this, pa this passage is packed with, with things that make you go, hmm, I never thought of that. They're presenting Jesus, the Son of God, for special, dedicated service unto God. But look at what they must do in order to present Him. Verse 24, And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. There's the law of the Lord again. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So in order to present Jesus in order to present the firstborn, the law says that a sacrifice must be made. But the, but the Word of God tells us that in order to present the firstborn to the Lord, a sacrifice must be made. A sacrifice that covers the sin of the parents while they bring the boy to be presented to service to the Lord. Now, scriptures say that uh, th that sacrifice is to be a lamb and a bird, a lamb and a dove. Or if the parents can't afford a lamb and a dove, it can be two turtle doves or two doves. Or two pigeons, I mean. I take it that the reason that you have a choice there was my understanding of turtle doves is that they're migratory birds, and so maybe there weren't always turtle doves around. I'm, I'm not sure about that, but there's always pigeons around. So you have the choice between the two, and so they bring the two birds, which again is a reminder 
Mary and Joseph could not afford the lamb sacrifice. Jesus was born into humility. Jesus was born in a humble state to parents that couldn't even afford the proper sacrifice for his presenting. Of course, this is well before the wise men come. The wise men come to a, a boy Jesus, not a baby Jesus. They come to a boy Jesus, two years old, three years old, something like that. So they, they haven't gotten the frankincense and gold they could cash in yet in order to buy the lamb. So they bring the two birds to sacrifice in order to bring the sacrifice. Isn't this amazing? That they sacrifice as they bring the sacrifice. The Son of God who came to us to serve us, Mary and Joseph bring Him to God to say, we present Him to you and here's our sacrifice to cover our sin so that you can then receive what is your sacrifice that you gave to us. The whole passage, I think, is just packed with a divine type of irony. So they come here with this sacrifice uh, of two, uh, two birds. And then verse 25. By the way, before we leave Mary and Joseph, there was also a redemption tax that had to be paid. When, and this is the scripture we started to look at a moment ago. Numbers 18. The firstborn of man you shall redeem. And their redemption price at a month old, which is Jesus is five weeks old now, at a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix the price at five shekels in silver. Now here's what that says. When a couple had their firstborn boy, they would come and present it in the temple and they would pay a five-shekel temple tax or redemption. What that means is, is that there is only one tribe of people that could be priests. Those were Levites. Any firstborn male who was not a Levite paid the redemption price in order to help cover the price or the cost of the Levites who were serving in the temple. And it was called a redemption. A redemption price. So, the irony gets thicker. The Redeemer is redeemed. The Ransomer is ransomed. Marvelous, isn't it? Now, before you take that too far, because you can take that, that too far, before you go too far with that, here's, here's what that means for us. Once again, this is two pictures for us. One, the picture of perfect obedience on the part of Mary and Joseph on behalf of Jesus. Secondly, this is the picture of pervading sin that Jesus has come to take away. The Redeemer has come to redeem His people from the necessity of paying a redemption price. We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash garden fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.